If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 26. And as you're turning there, let me give a few words of just introduction to the series as a whole. Um, and say this, this, this is a critical sermon to this entire series. It will set the tone and the foundation for how we understand. Don't cry, man. I'll be done in just a few hours. Uh, it, it sets the tone and, and is the foundation for all that we're going to do uh, and, and talk about. And so this is critical, um, critical material for us because we can get sideways on this in a hurry. Some of you come in with a significant amount of baggage on either one or both of these issues. Some of you have experienced the tyranny of strict Sabbatarianism that took all of the joy and all of the rest out of it because you were worried to death. You were going to get it wrong and God was somehow going to judge you. For some of you, you are so loose in your Sabbatarian views that you don't want to be told anything about the Sabbath and you don't feel like there's any rules whatsoever. And hopefully by the end of this sermon series, you will recognize that some of the verses that you try to use to justify your loose Sabbatarianism actually don't work. Because most of all, we want to be biblical. We want the Lord to determine who we are and how we live. But we also have to remember that deep within us is the fall where we are constantly trying to usurp the creator-creature distinction, aren't we? Time and again, we seek to be wise in our own eyes and try to say, no, Lord, I know better for me. I know what works for me. And what works for me is to lay around and play video games seven days a week and do nothing. What works for me is to work as hard as I can seven days a week with no break whatsoever so that I can rest when I'm dead and can't appreciate any of the things I've gained. No, I know it works for me. See, that's constantly what we're saying. And so we have to straight away remember that one of the critical presuppositions to this entire sermon series and this church and anything I ever say is the creator-creature distinction that we first confess that God knows better than we do. He made us. So he knows what works best for us. Why are we even talking about this in our culture, right? We don't, we don't struggle with workaholism, do we? We don't struggle with not resting, do we, college students? We don't struggle with, with being identified by our work, do we? We do, don't we? This is why this series, I think, is critical for us in our context, especially in suburbia north of Atlanta, where we are so overwhelmed with activities and busyness and being defined by so many different things other than how God intended for us to be defined so that the world would know who we are. The work Sabbath balance is absolutely critical to that understanding. So this is why we will talk about these things over the next seven weeks. There's a lot of verses that we could have looked at. We'll touch on them from time to time. Uh, just so you have a fuller appreciation and understanding, but I, I just didn't want it to go on for too long. And this is the beginning of a conversation, not the end point, by the way. So for those of you who, as you hear certain things, you may be hearing them through a lens and a filter that is already distorted. If you, are, if you think I'm saying something that is unbiblical, please come talk to me. To love me well is to be a Berean and come to me and say, hey man, I, I don't think that's biblical. And you know what I want to be? I want to be biblical more than I want to be right or known for being right. And so if there's something we need to ever correct in the sermon series, I'm not infallible, by the way. Yeah, I read probably 15 or 20 books and have studied this out um, for more than just this past few weeks. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm the expert. And so if there's something, we want to be biblical on the whole. So if there's something you can add to that or we need to nuance in a better way, by all means, please come talk to me, and, and let's work through that, all right? All right, so having said all that, let's turn our attention to the book of Genesis um, and, and look at what I think is, if, if, if you don't have a good grasp of Genesis 1 and 2, I don't think you can have a grasp of the redemptive story or the Bible at all. Time and again, the writers in, in the book, in the various books of the Bible, they turn again and again to creation as definitive, as something that helps to frame us and shape us and to understand us. And what's so interesting um, is that we as reformed people, for those of us who claim that title, um, we don't start here. Where do we normally start? Which chapter? 
three. We start with the fall, right? Because that's what defines us most, isn't it? You better hope not. It does have a definitive impact on you. Yes, it does. And I won't minimize that in any way, shape, or form. But we have spent so much time hammering away at the T that we forgot Genesis 1 and 2. We forgot that we were crowned with honor and glory and that, and that Genesis, I mean, I'm sorry, Psalm 8 is true. Now, for those of you who would say, well, Psalm 8 is really only true for Jesus. Well, let me ask you this. Whose image is it you're being transformed into? Right? The Psalm 8, Jesus. So that it would be true of you too, so that you too could say, what is man that you're mindful of him? That you would crown him with honor and glory and that you would grant him dominion over your creation. See, that didn't cease to be true because of the fall. Genesis 1 and 2 don't get thrown out in toto. No, they just get put through a glass wholly darkly until we are redeemed. And so it's very important for us to recognize where we ought to really start with the creator-creature distinction and God's love for that which he made and his appreciation for that which he made so that we don't drift into worm theology and so that we don't drift into treating others as less than. All right, so having said all that, it's important for us to first designate who was the first audience to hear Genesis 1 and 2? Who, who heard this sermon first? Well, Michael D. Williams in the book, Far as the Curse is Found, and many other theologians after him, or before him rather, um, say that it was those who had been just set free from Egypt and were in the wilderness. Now, why in the world would that be the first audience for Genesis 1 and 2? Well, let's think about that for a second. They had been in Egypt for 400 years hearing that they were worthless and that they were sorry and that they didn't get a day off and that they had to do more with less and that they were a meaningless people because their God-man Pharaoh said so. And they were told that there was a pantheon of gods in creation that they needed to fear, which is why God systematically plagued by plague, took away all that could be said of the gods of Egypt, with Pharaoh being the last, the worst, the death of the firstborn sons. He couldn't even protect his own. And after jettisoning all those gods, they would hear Genesis 1 that no, there was a God, the God, Yahweh, Elohim, who made all things. There's no God of the sun because he made the sun. This is one of the reasons when you read in that psalm, it says the sun will neither strike you by day nor the moon by night. You ever read that and wondered, well, who, why is that a big deal? Well, it's because the ancient Near Eastern peoples feared the gods of both of those things. In fact, they feared the god of the moon, thinking if the moonlight struck you that your blood would be sucked from you, the first kind of vampire diaries, if you will. And so, and so God was saying, you don't need to fear those things. I made them, and I made them for your good and my glory. This is also why they don't show up in the new heavens and the new earth, because they're not needed. So it tells us there is no God but Yahweh, and it's Yahweh Elohim, the powerful covenant God who is both transcendent and eminent. So they would have heard that he created all things. And then what they would have seen is that they were created for a purpose, and that purpose was not to labor until they were destroyed. In fact, they were to serve as co-creators with God not as tools for his use to be thrown away when used up. Like all of the other ancient Near Eastern myths, the creation myths suggest that, that humans are only for the purpose of being consumed by and serving those gods in sorrow and suffering and pain. There is no good news. And they were not, none of the ancient Near Eastern myths have anything about taking a day off, by the way. So it's amazing is straight away God says... I give you the Sabbath. Now, if you know anything about the Exodus story where they would have heard this sermon, it would have probably been after they sang that great contemporary hymn, The Song of Moses. It's contemporary because it was written kind of right on the spot, right? You guys get that, that it was contemporary music that the Bible supports for the most part. I'm just messing with you. All right, so, so after they hear all this and see all this, they're hearing this sermon about creation and then they have trouble with water and food and what does God do straight away? Exodus 16, he gives them manna from heaven and he even tells them, now listen, 
On the, la on the sixth day, I'm going to give you a double portion, which you've done nothing to earn. So you can take the seventh day to just take and appreciate who I am and enjoy what I have done and I have given you. This is before law, by the way. You realize this? This is even before the formation in full of the nation. So Sabbath keeping is not purely Jewish, by the way. It's for any who call Abraham their father. Which, if you know anything about the Abrahamic covenant, is all of us. What Paul calls the gospel. And so, straight away, they're hearing this sermon about how they're a unique and special people, the crown jewel of creation, which was utterly antithetical to every other myth they would have heard. Now, is that not something we need to hear today? How many of us struggle with feeling as if we are of no value whatsoever? Now, don't get me wrong. Apart from Christ, are you bound for judgment? Yes, you are. And that is a worthlessness that ought not be for one who bears the image. And we ought to care that anyone would perish. Because that is the ultimate meaninglessness, isn't it? But, but, we have to remember that we're not saved because of anything unique that we do. It's because God has bestowed his image upon us. He is the first mover no matter what. It's okay for us to recognize that God loves us. It's okay. It's okay for us to recognize that we've been given unique talents and gifts and abilities to co-create with him. Our arrogance doesn't come from that. I've yet to find someone that is so arrogant in their love of God and God's love for them. It's always an arrogance apart from God. It's always an arrogance about what they can do outside of the wisdom and the will of God. That's where arrogance comes from. Would that we would use biblical language and boast in the glory of God, right? Would that we would boast in the salvation in Christ, which evidences that we mattered to God. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is telling a people who for 400 years have been told they were worthless, no, you matter. And I created you to matter. And I created you for something greater than slavery, which is why I'm going to lead you to the promised land. I'm going to give you the Sabbath on the way. And I'm going to give you everything you need to make it. And even in the midst of their sin, yes, a bunch of them dropped dead in the wilderness because of their disobedience. But even still, the covenant held. He made sure that what he promised would be true of his people. And amen. Again, he's saying the fall does not have the final and definitive say. So as we look at this, it is important for us to recognize who it was given to so that we recognize the purpose for which it was written. This is not, and I've said this before, it is not a polemic against science. It's just not. It was not intended to be able to eviscerate Richard Dawkins. It does, actually, but not the way we think about it. How it eviscerates Richard Dawkins is it says, no, you were created for a purpose. Richard Dawkins says you were created for whatever. And we get it all tangled up and wrong when we go trying to make it say something that it's not intended to say. We are not contra science. Science is a gift of knowledge to us. Does it get twisted like everything else does, even preaching? Yes, it does. So, we have to recognize that this is the beginning of the covenant story. And everything that it's speaking of is laden with covenant language. In fact, we're going to see that God uses his covenant name in Genesis 2 when it says Yahweh Elohim. Elohim meaning the sovereign, powerful God. And to combine Yahweh with that is to say the God who is both near and far. The one who can create and do all things also draws near to and is in relationship with his people. And so it's critical for us to understand this is covenant stuff because otherwise we will misunderstand the purpose of the Sabbath. And we will also misunderstand the purpose of our work. So listen to what uh, W. Robert Godfrey says in his book, God's Pattern for Creation, a covenantal reading of Genesis 1. He says the whole Bible is covenantal because from beginning to end, it shows how God is our God and how he makes us his people. First in creation and then in redemption through Christ. The whole thing is a covenant document because it's declaring God's relationship with his people. This is also why there's two creation accounts right at the beginning. Right? Think about this for a second. This brilliantly 
put together book over thousands of years. It has this incredible internal validity that even shook a, a former radical anti-theist like myself. How would they stumble right out of the gate? Right? Did you, you think they were like, uh, bro, I got two creation accounts. <laughs> I don't know. Let's you know, just stick them in there, I guess. No, that's not what they did. There's a reason for it. And what you'll notice if you read Genesis 1 and 2 is Genesis 1 is clearly from God's perspective. It's from the heavenly perspective. That is where it is centered. And man is the crown jewel of that creation. In the second, which is Genesis 2, it is from man's perspective. Notice man shows up way early in that account. And it says that he was placed in the garden to work it. And so everything comes from that perspective and it's located or centered in the very garden of Eden. And the reason you have two accounts is because this tells you straight away that this is the story of God and humanity, of his relationship with his people. That's one of the great indicators that this is in fact a covenant document. An amen that he would give us, such a beautiful constructed thing. And as we begin this, it's important for us to remember this. And you hear me say this a lot because I think we forget it a lot. What is the point of the biblical story? Not a rhetorical question, somebody can answer. To enjoy God forever, but how do we do that? In his presence. And I think we forget that. I think that we forget that the, the whole point of the biblical story is that God would be able to dwell with his people forever. You get that? He wants to be with you. Not just set you up, send you off to college, and see you on Christmas and Easter. He longs to be with you in your presence, you in his, and enjoying one another forever. What is the point of your life? That. It doesn't change on an individualistic perspective. If we forget that, we get lost, don't we? When we try to make the biblical story about anything other than God longing to be with his people, be in their presence, we turn it into something hideous and wrong. So as we begin this sermon series and as we begin this discussion on Genesis 1 and most of Genesis 2, or all of Genesis 2, let's recognize the point of the story and see straight away how God designed us to be with him and work with him, and that the fall, as we'll see next week, ultimately did not change that goal at all. All right, if you would, turn with me to the text. We'll look at verses 26 through 30. <clears throat> now, we chose not to read all of Genesis 1 and 2. There's just no way to get it all in. And there's, uh, no, uh, just know this, there's no way for me to address every question that comes up. Our narrow focus for looking at the text this time is to see how God has designed and created us. So there's a lot of things that I just won't even be able to touch on. Um, and that's also the beauty of scripture is that it has so much depth and richness to it that we can come back to it again and again and again. But hear God's word again this morning. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. This oftentimes is referred to in one of two ways, and they both mean the same thing, as the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. Some people refer to it as the covenant of works. Um, I, I tend to lean more toward the cultural mandate uh, just because this is God calling um, that which he had just created, the crown jewel of creation, to shape and create culture. 
and to join with him as co-creators in taking the raw material of creation and turning it into something so that his people would flourish and he would have a place to dwell with them forever. So in the cultural mandate, we see some pretty interesting things here. One, I want you to notice how much of the language indicates how important his creation is to him in and uniquely Adam and Eve. There are things that he says here that he says of no other creation. Notice first, he says, let us make them in our image. Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion about the Trinitarian argument or the heavenly realm argument for the, for the plurality of what's being said there. I, just so I show my cards, lean toward that being the Trinity, mainly because it says in John 1 that, that Christ was there and Christ participated in creation. I know there's some others who are smarter than I am, like Meredith Klein, who say something different. I love those guys. When we get to heaven, we're not going to fight about it anyway. But um, he says, let us make them in our own image. And the, the Hebrew there indicates that what is happening is you could think of it as, um, and this is not what God did, but it, it, it could, the word could be used for cutting off a piece of himself and fashioning it into a replica of himself. So in essence, it's almost as saying is, I'm including some of my own material in this creation, which he, if you remember how Adam was created, he breathed into him the dust of the earth and fashioned him into something. It's also a way in which a king would fashion a replica of himself and put it in different places so that people knew that's where his sovereignty extended to. So straight away, God is saying, you are my reflection. You are the representation or replica of my sovereignty in this world. So when he tells him to be fruitful, multiply, what's he telling him to do? Replicate my image, not yours. Replicate my glory, not yours. Notice what else we see here. He speaks to them. It's the only creation that he speaks to, which indicates to us that this relationship will be word. That there will be a spokenness, a readness, a heardness to our relationship with God that is unique in all of creation. He doesn't speak to the beasts of the fields and say to them, hey, platypus, here's where you go and here's what you eat. No, it's just, it's, it's fashioned into them, nor does he give them his breath. It is unique that man and woman have been given the breath of God, have been given the image of God, and have been spoken to and treated as a co-creator. It, it evidences that they are not just operating on some sort of automatic or Darwinian idea. No, these, these are operating on something completely different. It's the word of God. And so he gives them a task. He gives them dominion which tells them that they are, in essence, kingly and queenly. That's why I love when we sang the old wooden cross. I love that image of we're going to give up our trophies that we've made in this world, and we will again receive a crown. I know many of you are like, no, I thought we were going to cast on our crowns before God. Yes, there's a sense in which we're ca that's the giving up of our trophies. But there's this, there is also the reality that we will be crowned again to be co partners in the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal Sabbath rest. And so this is all royal language. They are being high and lifted up and different and unique from all of creation. And they are granted equal dignity as males and females here. From God's perspective, from the heavenly throne room, they are granted equal access to the image. Now notice what it says about Christ. What will there be in Christ when all things are made new? neither male nor female, that distinction will be gone. There will be also neither preacher nor parishioner. So all of the authoritative structures that are necessary in this world will no longer be needed because the king will be in our midst at long last. So here's what's very important about that, is that we recognize and treat each other with the same dignity as image bearers that God bestows upon us. Also recognizing what we're going to see later from Genesis 2, the necessity for a hierarchy in a sense. A hierarchy of servitude, not of tyranny. Which is why Christ says to the disciples, don't rule like the Gentiles do. Lording it over them. You are to rule as the servant of all, the one who came to serve and die for many. Not as they do. 
And so there's all, all of this language finds its way permeating through all of Scripture. And so here, man and woman are unique and they are treated as co-creators with God. They're given a task, and that task is to be fruitful and multiply. Let me say this. It's not only childbearing. It includes childbearing. That's a big part of it, but it's not only that. It also includes other creative works as well, the formation of institutions and other things that would help to spread the, whatever helps to spread the glory of God helps us to be fruitful and multiply. Now, this is good news for those of you who have struggled with infertility. It's not that you are uniquely broken. No, you're given a slightly different task within that realm. And it, again, the fall doesn't have the final say on you. And amen. They're also told to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, which means they're to take the raw material of creation and shape it, Right? and to make it into something that reflects the glory of God. This means that we have been given this task to participate along with the creator God. And would that we would recognize that our work should uniquely do that, even still, even in a fallen world. How do we know? Well, when does the fall occur in Genesis? Chapter 3. Thank you, Zach. Uh, you should always have to think. And then it's funny because chapter nine, what happened in six, seven, and eight? What happened? Got to be one Bible scholar Christian in this room. The flood, right? Now, why'd the flood come? Because the world was horrible. And when Noah gets off the boat, what is he tasked with? Wes Calton, what's he tasked with? Recreating to be what? fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the earth. And then we have the old sorry sapsucker, which is a bird, by the way. I didn't just cuss. The old sorry sapsucker, Jacob comes along, who's robbed his brother of his birthright and all this stuff. He tasks him as Israel, and he calls him to do the same thing, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, subdue the earth. It's interesting, when they get into the promised land, guess what they're told to do? Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, subdue the earth. What's interesting is when Christ gives the great commission, what does it sound a lot like? Be fruitful, multiply, make disciples, have dominion. I've been given dominion and authority, subdue these things through baptism and discipleship. Take the raw material that the Lord has created and shape it into something that bears his image. So the fall does not change our calling. And that's important for us to understand because most people, and I've asked a ton of folks, not very many here, but where did work start? Almost all of them say the fall. No, work begins at creation. Work is a divine mandate. It is a sacred calling. And so what we see here is how we were originally created and designed. We were designed to partner with the Lord our God and to work alongside him as his replicas, as his image bearers. H.C. Leopold, who is an Old Testament scholar, who Sam Larson thought a whole lot of, because I got a bunch of his commentaries in my office now, says this, a divine counsel precedes the creation of man. So that whole us language, that precedes the creation of man. In fact, Calvin talks about it being uh, um, a kind of a conversation that goes on. No other part of creation does God have a counsel or conversation about. Only the creation of man and woman. But it says a divine counsel precedes the creation of man. By this means, the singular dignity of man is very strongly stressed. From every point of view is seen to be the crown and climax of God's creation. That means that humanity had a unique function and meant something unique to the Lord our God. We are not ants on a hill. We are not grains of sand on the beach. We are that which is prized by the Lord himself. We need to remember that. We also need to remember how in our fallenness we are separated from him. But notice, if that were the end of the story, if God, God could just judge it and end it there. But he didn't, did he? He tarries, as 2 Peter 3 tells us, because he loves us. We need to remember that. And not cheapen grace, or cheapen the law, or cheapen the fall, but magnify that 
holiness and holy love of the Lord our God. All right, if you would answer this question, think about it. Do you recognize the unique dignity that has been placed on those who bear God's image, including you? So did the image go away? Well, no, scripture tells us you're not supposed to murder somebody because they bear the image of God. And this is after the fall. So the image remains in some flicker, some fashion. And I have recently been confronted by this. I hang out in downtown Woodstock a fair amount. I just love kind of the layout and the town. And there's a, it is an interesting place. I, I'm like, where did these people come from? You got a bunch of skater kids. You got a bunch of uh, ne'er-do-wells. You got a bunch of rapscallions. Uh, it's, just, it's just every walk of life down there, it seems. And it just seems odd for Cherokee County. Uh, I don't know why I think that, but I just do. And so it's been interesting to hang out down there and get to know some of those people. Because my first impression on some of them, because they're so, they have like this permanent scowl. I mean, it, you know, it's just like, uh, and so I was confronted with, I am forgetting the image that they bear. And instead of instead of wanting to share the gospel with them, there was almost an immediate judgment in my heart on them. And the Lord really used that as I was preparing for this and as I spent time downtown Woodstock to show me, no, no, they all bear my image. And I want them to know that I love them. And what are you hanging out down there for? If I needed somebody to judge them, it wouldn't be you. I got better ways of doing that. It's just been interesting how some relationships have begun to form um, there's a friend of mine who is a, an author now twice over named Alex Early, and he and I hang out down there a pretty good bit. And it's, it's really interesting how he's actually transitioned me also into having an entree with some of these folks, uh, because looking like I do, it ain't easy for them either. Um, and so, so I am learning greater and greater measure how the image of God ought to be respected in others as well. And I'm, I should love them most by sharing the gospel with them just as what Linda is trying to do in Haiti. So how does your work, in light of all that, reflect the creation mandate or the cultural mandate? Like I said, I would encourage you to go to the appendix in the back of the devotional and look at how what you do connects to what God has done and is doing. And, and to really kind of begin to think through that because sometimes in the church we can overemphasize what I do as somehow it's better than what you do. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I shared the gospel way more as a physical therapist than I have as pastor. Not because I'm lazy as pastor, but my work has changed and I can't sneak up on anybody. I, the cat's out of the bag when they say, hey, what do you do? I, I don't feel comfortable being like, oh, I'm a, I'm a, a motivational challenger speaker type. Yeah, I, I do it every Sunday. Uh, you should come check it out. Um, I, I'm not, that's, not, that's not true. <laughs> Um, but once people know I'm a pastor, it changes how they view me, how, what they'll say to me. When as a physical therapist, they tell me anything to, that, that, that they wanted me to know, just maybe so I'd quit hurting them. And so uh, you all, in some respects, may have more opportunity to actually bring about this cultural creation mandate than I do. And, and we need to be, begin to recognize that and value that and pray for that and, and cultivate that as garden material. All right, if you would turn back to the text, let's look at verses uh, 131 through 2-3. God's word says this, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And in the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Again, we want to notice a couple things that signal to us the uniqueness of the seventh day. Notice there's no mention of evening and morning in terms of the seventh day. Now, many think, and I am in agreement with them in light of Hebrews 4, that that's because this day is eternal. This, there's an eternality to this day that it is the goal of creation. God rests from his work in much the same way that Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father when his work, at least the first portion, was finished. 
This isn't about God going and taking a nap. This is him being able to be enthroned because that which he had done as creator was finished and now available for him to appreciate. So it's not that he's going to lay down somewhere. It's that he's taking his place upon the throne. And he is blessing and making this day holy, something that is a gift to us. It shows us what the goal of all of this is. The goal of all of this is not meaninglessness. The goal of all of this is that we one day could join him in the eternal Sabbath rest and enjoy all that has been made. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. I don't even know what it's going to totally look like, but I can't wait. And what's awesome is that he gives us, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, a foretaste of that day every single solitary week, whether you will use it or not. It's there. And so here, this is a creation ordinance. And the seventh day is repeated three times over. It's the only day that's repeated. And anytime something's repeated, it tells you of the gravity of it. And so here, God is saying this day is unique. This day points forward to something. And I also want you to notice that the first full day that Adam and Eve have upon this planet is what day? The Sabbath. So straight away, that's, that's got a teachable moment to it. That's polemical, if you will. It's pedagogical. He's saying to them, listen, I have worked. Now you take and enjoy. I have created. So before you get started, enjoy what I have done. And then you get to work shaping and molding the raw material that I have given you. So straight away, there's grace. Straight away, there is worship. There's enjoying the very presence of the Lord. Listen to what Don W. Robertson says in a little booklet called The Christian Sabbath. If you can find it, I would commend it to you. It says this, At this point in history, the Sabbath day became a special day of remembrance of God's creative work and man's utter dependence upon the Creator. So the very first day tells them, you are in covenant. This is a covenantal day. This is a sign. In fact, Ezekiel is going to pick up on this language and he's going to say, listen, how you guys kept the Sabbath was what would differentiate you from the rest of the nations. It would tell the world that you were God's people. Is there any culture in history like ours that this would not be such a beautiful picture to the world who and whose we are? Not in legalism, but as blessed children of God. And so we rob ourselves when we approach the Sabbath as something that was law before it was creation ordinance and gift. It's written into the law, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, because we, God knew, we would, we would jettison it so quickly because we think we're smarter than he is. Listen to what John Currid um, Old Testament scholar says about this. He says, the seventh day marks the consummation and finality of the creation week, but it also represents mankind's first full day upon the earth. Humanity spends the first day of existence in God's Sabbath, worshiping and enjoying him. Now, if you're wicked like I am, you're going to say, show me where they worship. Show me their liturgy. Well, this is where I'd step back and say, well, let's look at the whole sweep of Scripture and how it talks about the Sabbath and what the intent was and what the purpose was. So tell me this. Why were they released from Egypt? For what purpose? To go and worship. What was the first day they're given designated for worship? The Sabbath. They're told, don't gather any bread. You'll get double the day before. This is the day you will enjoy the Lord your God. It's always been part of the design of creation itself. We were intended to take a day to enjoy him, to be reminded of who and whose we are. If you think of the Sabbath in any other way, you've got it wrong. You've got it unbiblical. So how are your Sabbath practices helping you to remember who and whose you are? Remember, one of the things I've encouraged you guys to do in some measures to take time on the Lord's Day to remember how God has been good, right? Because we don't take time to do that. We're not good at remembering. We don't carve out a space for that. We, we take a lot of time to complain about how the world is bad and how the upcoming election is going to be the end of all things and how one of them is the Antichrist. All of them are the Antichrist. They're a collective group, whatever. 
Um, and so we spend a lot of time complaining about what God doesn't grant us and how we have unanswered prayers and how we don't understand why this is happening to us. But where do you take a space where you step back out of all of that fallenness and remember who God is and who you are? And you talk about it all the way down to how Christ holds all things together, how even the breath in your lungs right now is gift. Not for you to be entitled about. And so your Sabbath practices are shaping you. And everybody's got to start somewhere. I understand in our culture, things are tough. So if all you did was at least carve out one hour per week to talk about the goodness of God as a family, and the Lord's Day is a great day to do that, by the way, then you would be ahead of the vast majority of the world. And what you're going to find is that you're going to want more time. You're going to want more time to enjoy the Lord and enjoy the goodness that he has given you and, and to enjoy the things that he has helped you to co-create just this week. And what a gift that we would have, how it would change us. Let's turn back to the text. Now, we're going to move very quickly through this part. And there's a whole bunch of stuff I can't take the time to say about marriage and all these other things. But I want to point out a couple of things. So make, uh, make sure you pay special attention to where work shows up here. Beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So what does that tell us straight away that is incomplete? What's missing? The co-creator to take the raw material of creation and shape it into the image and glory of God. That is what it was created for. It was put there for man to work. And moving on, it says, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Notice the intimacy. How close do you got to get to breathe into somebody's nostrils? One of the things that drives my wife crazy is for me to get too close to her face because she feels like she's breathing uh, used air is how she says it. I said, no, you're breathing Shekinah glory. That's not true, by the way. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Let me pause for a second. Why would he talk about beauty before function? And what should that teach us about who we are and what creation is? We are not utilitarian tools. God's creation is not utilitarian to be used up and spit out. And some of you are worrying, is Cameron going to start making us hug trees in the parking lot as worship? No, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. But I will say this. One of the greatest things you can do is care about beauty and the aesthetic. As one who has served in the inner city, one of the things that is so devastating is the blight the lack of the evidence of life. Think about how spring up here with all the flowers planted does something to your soul. Seeing all that beauty and all that goodness. Uh, on the way to um, the Daily Grind, there's some house that has a row of trees that are flame orange. And we want to drive down there and ask them about it, but we're afraid we'll get shot at. But it's just beautiful to see this row of trees flame orange. The whole tree is orange. I think it's a wild azalea. But it's just beautiful. And it makes us pause, doesn't it? And take a breath. Here God is saying, that's what I wanted you to do to begin with. Before you even eat of it, appreciate its beauty. And he goes on to say, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let me pause here for just a second. This is not going to satisfy your questions about this uh, as to why these trees are here. But let me offer you this. And I've got a number of theologians who say the same thing behind me. These trees, in essence, are sacramental. Now, what does that mean? They are the visible sign of the spiritual reality. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the spiritual reality that will come to pass is death. If you eat of the tree of life, the spirituality that will come to pass is life. And so they stand in the garden as a testimony to the creator-creature distinction. 
The tree of the knowledge of good and evil reminds Adam and Eve and anyone who's created after them that I am the Lord your God and you are the creature. I have fashioned you. I determined you. I placed you in this garden. You did not choose it. Goes on to say, and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now note that he talks about all that beautiful raw material. What is the temple made out of? All that beautiful raw material. When we get to the new heavens and new earth, what is it going to be made out of? These words show up again, you recognize. And it was for them, it was gifted to them as raw material to make beautiful things. It goes on, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So what was man designed to do? Work and keep the garden to extend its boundaries further and further out so that the glory of the Lord would fill the world. What did Christ come to do? Fill the earth with the glory of God and extend it over the whole, the face of the earth. And he is going to bring the heavens, new heavens, new earth here and make all things new. Amen. The project hasn't changed. And the Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Again, God's just reminding him, I am the creator. You are the creature. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man, for him to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... It's the first time his name shows up. He's no longer just the man. He's been named. What does that tell you that God is declaring over him? His sovereign right as creator. Man had named the animals as co-creator. Now Adam has been named. It says, there was not found a helper fit for him being Adam. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place of flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Let me pause for just a second. Notice how he brings Eve to Adam. This has got some kind of marriage ceremony type stuff to it. This is why some would argue that the father walks the daughter down the aisle to deliver her. And notice that it's something that was taken from his side. Now that is one of the strangest portions of the Bible, but uh, there's a Hebrew kind of aphorism that I think is beautiful. It says that Eve was neither created from man's head so that she would think that she could rule over him nor his foot so that he would think she was beneath him. She was pulled from his very side where she would walk alongside him and she was made of rib because she would do that which was most important, which was protect his heart. What a beautiful thing. I can live with that, can't you? So it's, it's, we see here there is a hierarchy of servitude that is different in the garden than it is in the heavenly realm. And it goes on to say, the man wrote a love song. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So very quickly, what we see here is that man was created for community and that we were called to be co-creators, not individually, not in a vacuum, but instead we are called to do this together. The basic building block of that is considered to be marriage. It was the basic building block of society, which is why man would go into this discussion of leaving and cleaving. They were to work this together as image bearers. You are not created to go it alone. What about for those of you who by virtue of the fall maybe struggle with same-sex attraction or you're just, you just hadn't found a suitable helpmate 
Are you out? Are you, or maybe you're widowed or maybe you're divorced. Are you unable to participate in this? No, this is why the Lord gives you Jesus, your bridegroom. This is why God gives you the church because we together are the bride. This is why God gives us friendship and fellowship and connectivity. None of us should go it alone. And in fact, in Jesus, you notice things get bigger, not smaller. How circumcision and baptism, circumcision was only for boys. Baptism includes all. So you are not left without a purpose if you struggle with any of these things. You are not left without a mission. You are not left without a creator who has designed you and fashioned you for his glory. And may I remind you, you don't get to decide who and what you are, though you think you do. In the end, you will be defined by him. So, better that we would grab a hold of who we are and what we were designed to be instead of letting the fall define us. As we close out, listen to this quote from Thomas Nelson in his book, Work Matters. The Lord God takes the initiative and places humankind in the Garden of Eden with a particular task in mind. The emphasis here is not about personal human choice, but rather divine initiative and divine calling. Now, we'll get into some conversation over the coming weeks about, for some of you, uh, you're in a great position because you're in college. You, you, you're still trying to figure out what God has called you to do and how should you think about that. For some of you, you may feel trapped because you've, you've got school loans and you've got, you've got this job that you're in and you're trying to figure out how does it work. We want to walk with you in that. We want to talk about those things. But first, recognize God remains sovereign. That didn't change. What do we learn from this quickly? Three things. One, humanity is the crown jewel of creation that was created in the image of God to fulfill the creation mandate. We've got a purpose. We were created for a purpose. Two, the Sabbath is a covenant sign of the creator-creature distinction and seal of the eternal goal of humanity. Three, humanity was sovereignly placed in Eden in community to work to help shape the raw material of creation to the glory of God. Let me close with this quote by John Mark Comer from the book Garden City. You were made to do good. To mirror and mimic what God is like to the world. To stand at the interface between creation, between the creator and his creation. Implementing God's creative, generous blessing over all the earth and giving voice to creation's worship. And at no time in history is that more true than today. The fall did not take that away from us and you need to know that. Now, how can we as a community encourage each other in this and build each other up to work and rest as we were created? Let me pray. Father, thank you <coughs> that you have made us for a purpose and you've been clear about that purpose. God, thank you that the fall did not change our purpose. It didn't change who we are to you. It doesn't mean that we are less valued. You, in fact, have displayed your love all the more to pursue us while we were still yet your enemies. God, may each of us in here today wrestle with what you have created us to be and how we can live that out and display that in our lives. For some of us, it's gonna take more time to work out than others. That's okay. Help us to do, um, do good work together. Help us to build each other up. Help us to figure this stuff out together through your word, the power of your spirit, and in the community that you've given us. God, thank you for loving us so much through the person and work of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit, and through the revelation of your word. Thank you that you allow us to gather and worship on a weekly basis. Thank you that you feed us so richly, just as you did so long ago. In Christ's name, amen.